hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is supported by Yale University Press's The Art of Color, the history of art in 39 pigments. And look, there is a lot to remember when you're studying art history. Names and titles and dates and more dates. And it's hard to imagine on top of that, knowing the precise historical names for the pigments that Van Gogh used, where or when they were discovered, or the complex processes necessary to make them palette ready to create the pulsing power of the starry night. But what if we did know them? This is the idea behind the new book, The Art of Color, The History of Art in 39 Pigments by Kelly Grovier. It tells an innovative history of art through the biographies of paints and pigments, helping us understand in a new way how the colors in a given artwork affect us. Grovier takes readers on an exciting search for the intriguing and the unusual, ultimately enriching our experience of art. The Art of Color, The History of Art in 39 Pigments is published by Yale University Press and is available wherever books are sold. Okay, what am I looking at? I'm looking at splotches. White and pink and purple at the bottom. And it's delicate. Uh, It's an abstract piece. It's not like a Jackson Pollock. It's not aggressive like a Jackson Pollock, uh, but it's light and it's ethereal, if that's a word I can use here. It's um, feminine and it's not imposing. One of the things that immediately jumps out to me is the fact that the piece appears to be a triptych with a center and two wings, which obviously kind of parallels that of a butterfly. At the same time, the the wings are significantly more rough. Wood grain texture is much more visible. Obviously, there are these kind of splashes of vibrant reds and blues. This wood grain that is almost looks like the raw material of of a plywood board. To me, it kind of resembles the camouflage wings, the camouflage gossamer of moths. The colors remind me of a landscape. Obviously a, a abstracted, blurry landscape, but the pinks of a sunrise or a sunset and the greenish tone of hills on the horizon and a blue shoreline. There's something serene about it, something complex or layered. This is a piece um, I think you can get a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and spend some time with. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai.
episode 62, Helen Frankenthaler's Madam Butterfly, from 2000. Okay, time to overshare. So I was a kid who got a lot of nosebleeds. And whether it was due to sleeping near a radiator or dry air or curious fingers, I mean, look, we don't have to solve any mysteries here. But the point is, I got used to the drill of running for a Kleenex or a paper towel, holding my head forward, definitely not backward, ew, and waiting. Gently test-sniffing, waiting, dabbing, and dabbing. And as I waited for my nose to dry back up, I couldn't help but enjoy the process of dabbing that paper towel, watching that bright red stain quietly spread through its grains until it reached its natural, subtle stop. You can see that process better with paper towels than with tissues. I'm sure it won't surprise you that I was the kind of kid who noticed things like that. And you can really see it if you take it to the sink, stopping up the drain, turning on the faucet, and watching a little drop of blood hit the water and ripple out like paint. And as I got older and my nose got cleaner, so to speak, there were other functions and fluids that took its place. Mascara and menstrual blood and soap bubbles circling the drain. Other, quote, messy, necessary liquids of life, in the words of art critic and friend of the pod, Adam Gopnik. These liquids pooled and stained and swirled and made me see my body as perpetually capable of producing these art-making materials that could leave an impression on the world. It's gross. I know. It's gross, sure. And maybe not something that I'd talk about outside my closed bathroom door, especially to thousands of people, but maybe also kind of beautiful. Beautiful, as the artist Helen Frankenthaler said in an interview in 1990, is a tricky word, especially in art. Not only can we not pin down what it actually means, we can't even decide whether or not it's even good, whether it's a worthy thing for art to aspire to be. And beautiful is a word that's been applied to Frankenthaler's work in particular, and for better and worse. In the 1950s, it was hard enough to be a female abstract expressionist who was both a friend to and a protege of Jackson Pollock, like she was, steering clear, as she must have, of his hurling material spatter and swinging metaphorical genitals. But to then take these dynamic, masculine, abstract expressionist ideas of form, fling, energy, and materiality, and make them feminine, soft, beautiful? It's like you're asking to be diminished especially by your fellow female painters, who, it should be said, were crueler to her work than any man was. The painter Grace Hardigan sneered that Frankenthaler, notably a member of the upper crust, created paintings that looked like they were created, quote, between cocktails and dinner. 
Joan Mitchell dismissed Frankenthaler as a quote-unquote Kotex painter, one of the meanest things you could say to a woman artist trying to keep pace with the big boys of the movement. I mean, it's bad enough to reduce a woman to her menstrual cycles, but to liken her work to menstrual stains is f***ing savage. There's an extra special place in hell for women artists who don't support each other, is all I'm saying. But okay, if you're comparing Pollock to Frankenthaler, spatter to stain, then yes, Frankenthaler is going to seem like something passive and residual, something left behind. But Frankenthaler wasn't trying to keep pace with Pollock, or Hardigan and Mitchell, for that matter. Her stains weren't left behind. They were a medium all their own. Gentle, limitless, intimate, light as air. They evoked runny spills, smudgy traces of life lived, ethereal clouds in the sky, hazy, indistinct horizons. And they amount to something that is, tricky as the word can be, transcendently and upliftingly beautiful. As curators noted in reference to this woodcut, Madame Butterfly from 2000, from the end of Frankenthaler's career and almost her life. And it's hard to talk about one without the other. That is, her career and her life. Because she was one of those artists who started painting really young and then lived a really long time. So we get to see how her work evolved throughout her life. She was born in New York on December 12th, 1928, as it happens, 55 years to the day before I did, and died two weeks after her 83rd birthday in 2011. She painted the painting that made her famous in 1952, when she was 23. And that's the kind of age where fame basically sets the course of the rest of your life. There's no question that she was well-positioned for success. Growing up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, born into a life of cultural and intellectual privilege, educated at the finest schools, wearer of the finest pearls. But she was encouraged to pursue the life of the mind and the life of the imagination, which was unique for a woman in that moment. So when she graduated from college and entered the New York art scene, in her words, quote, a saddle-shoed girl a year out of Bennington, and then was introduced to a parade of significant, with a capital S, mid-century artists and critics, Hans Hoffman, Clement Greenberg, whom she dated, Robert Motherwell, whom she married, and then, of course, Pollock, she was extraordinarily well-positioned to both absorb their influence and use it to create something new. She was confident, she was educated, and she was invited to take a seat at the table. It turns out, when you're both privileged and talented, you talk and the art world listens. It was her relationship with Pollock, though, that initially set her on course. A woman who, in her younger days, would drip drops of nail polish in the basin of her own sink to watch the colors ripple and spread, I mean, get it, girl, found herself in the studio of a man who poured entire paint cans onto a canvas on the floor. It's not surprising that Pollock, in her words, quote, captured my eye and my whole psychic metabolism at a crucial moment in my life. 
And it was particularly that unique Pollock method of laying a canvas on the floor and approaching it from all sides, of using his own body and movements as though he himself were the bristles of a paintbrush, making contact with the rough, unprimed canvas, all of which we looked at in episode 12, that made an impression on her, and which then encouraged her to create her own unique style. In the early 1950s, in her early 20s, through a combination of what she describes as, quote, impatience, laziness, and innovation, Frankenthaler was struck with the idea to thin her paints with turpentine, and then, like Pollock, pour them from coffee cans onto a large canvas on the floor and just see how the colors interacted with each other, how they ran together and coalesced as they spread and soaked fully into the grains of the unprimed canvas, without gravity dictating their direction or borders limiting their scope. The fact of the canvas being on the ground, in fact, the very ground itself, Frankenthaler writes, was part of the medium. And this novel act of staining rather than stroking turned thick, ponderous oils into luminous watercolors. It revealed the drawn pencil marks underneath the paints that then became part of the painting. It changed the medium, the subject of abstraction itself the conversation. And you can see all of this in that painting that made her famous, Mountains and Sea, from 1952. Frankenthaler had just returned from a trip to Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, a spot known for its scenic vistas, where mountains eternally meet sea. This is an abstract painting that evokes landscape, the green of a rocky shoreline, the blue splashes of the hammering ocean waves. And it was also the first time she tried out this floor technique and this soak stain technique. As she wrote, the real talent lay in deciding, quote, where to leave it, where to fill it, where to say, this doesn't need another line or another pail of color, end quote. And the results were light and airy, and in her words, causal, accidental, incomplete, capturing the impermanence of a landscape and the light, 70 years after Monet, we should say, except now using the medium itself, the diaphanous paint, the gentle faded stain as the language to communicate it. Like with light and water, the stain is both the thing that is there and not there, both present and what remains. And let's look at the importance of the stain itself, that is, the paint. The art critic Clement Greenberg strongly believed that the best part of modern painting, now that cinema and photography had taken on the heavy lifting of replicating the world as it was, was its ability to just be paint. Yet paint itself, and moreover color, its tones and its values, its interrelationships and its moods, could then play into a larger emotional landscape. Color was key for Frankenthaler. She describes her process as, quote, drawing with color, not line. And for all the pastel subtlety of mountains and sea, she also experimented with vibrant colors that practically danced off the canvas, especially as she got older. 
density and boldness, volume and transparency. And yet, there was still always a larger emotional depth to those colors. Greenberg described Frankenthaler's art as always searching for the innerlichkeit, or inwardness, of the state of the world around her, which in the post-war American 1950s, especially for a Jewish artist like Frankenthaler, would never have been simple or conclusive. And this kind of exploration calls to mind Mark Rothko from episode 24, a fellow color field abstract expressionist, a fellow prober of deep feeling, whose paint dissolves elegantly from one color to the next. The difference, it would seem, is just that Frankenthaler seems happier. There's helium in her balloons. There's a greater sense of joy in discovery and experimentation in that paint itself. The Guardian critic Jonathan Jones gloriously wrote that a late Frankenthaler is like a Rothko dancing to jazz. So we've got a Frankenthaler who looks for an emotional inner life, but also just loves the paint on the surface. We've got a gentler, subtler, abstract expressionist whose work dances to jazz. We have the curator, Judith Goldman, who describes Frankenthaler's work as, quote, abstract and realistic, free and controlled, emphatically flat and capable of deep space, end quote. Clearly, we're dealing with artists, and curators for that matter, who have no problem contradicting themselves. And that's just the kind of occupational hazard of abstract art at all. It also revels in contradiction, or maybe juxtaposition, existing at a curious intersection between simplicity and complexity, between what is easily legible and what feels intentionally inaccessible big fat splotches of paint that go straight over your head or, when done well, make you cry. And Frankenthaler thrives in this space. Quote, most things are about ambiguity, she famously said. And it's why you have in her work joy and grief and paint on a surface. You have an upper-crust Bennington graduate playing with the runny, stained elements of life, like lipstick traces left on a Kleenex, as our pal Adam Gopnik says. You have paintings that, in the words of Frankenthaler's nephew, quote, provide a richer, slower sense of how you should read a painting, that also feel like it was painted, in her words, all at once, like the painting has magically hit both the canvas and our eye, in its wonderful, complete totality. And it's why you have a beautiful painting that shouldn't be reduced to its beauty. After all, she says, you can't prove beauty, and you certainly don't want your work dismissed as merely beautiful. And yet, the painting only succeeds if it is, in fact, beautiful. And this brings us to her later work, the transcendently and upliftingly beautiful painting that we're focusing on today. It's actually a series of woodcuts. It's not technically a painting. But like with most of Frankenthaler's work, you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the media used. Ink, paint, drawings. It's all a smeary blur that's absolutely beautiful to behold, but of course, let's take that as a given. 
But what is this woodcut? From a technical perspective, it's directly referencing Japanese woodcut technique of ukiyo-e printing, which we explored in episode 42, the ethereal quote-unquote floating world. It's also a Japanese narrative, referencing the tragic Puccini opera that centers on a Japanese heroine. The piece is constructed from two different types of paper, 46 woodblocks and 102 customized colors, and measures at over six and a half feet. And yet, it's not what you would ever imagine a woodcut to look like. We're used to those blocks being, you know, blocky. There's a blunt graphic linearity to traditional woodblock printing, one where you can imagine the building up of an image, block by block. But here, it's light as gossamer, velvety, delicate, almost as though it goes from in-focus to out-of-focus in a single sweep of your eye, and capturing her all-at-once sensibility through a medium that never usually does. And this untraditional aesthetic came from untraditional tools. In a process she wonderfully refers to as guzzying, she would distress the surface of her woodblock with cheese graters and dental instruments so that they looked as grainy and absorbent as the unprimed canvases of her earlier paintings. Speed was then essential to the process, as every layer had to be wet to absorb and run with every subsequent layer. She would then cut up the different prints and paste them together with others, creating, amazingly, what is essentially a collage of pure, unmitigated, and it must be said, beautiful flow. So how do you wrap something like this all up? I will say this. Despite being birthday buddies, Helen Frankenthaler and I are pretty different. The sense that I get from watching interview after interview on YouTube is that she is decidedly not an oversharer. She talks about her work in a slow, measured, humorless way that speaks to a career and a life spent defending her place in the movement between the big boys and the bitches. Although, to her credit, Grace Hardigan later apologized for the between cocktails and dinner burn. What I'm saying, though, is that Frankenthaler is not someone who would flippantly talk about all the things that belonged behind the bathroom door in the classic six of her childhood. But she knew where to find beauty. And she knew it could be behind that door. It could be anywhere. And accessing it requires a kind of freedom in creativity that feels totally unlike her upbringing, her marriages, her sex and gender in the middle of the 20th century. She knew how to push against the grain, both in her life and in her canvases. She knew to contradict herself in the pursuit of something, again in her words, quote, naturally, creatively free, heart, head, and wrists. She knew how to, quote, be in control enough not to be in control at all, to find the, quote, beautiful working order in an artwork, in nature, in a drop of blood or of nail polish, that expands outwards, subtly staining the water, organically going where it wants, 
gentle, limitless, intimate, light as air. All at once, all beautiful. Special thanks to Debbie Bleacher, Emily Marin, and especially Lee and Renee Matarazzo, patrons extraordinaire, who suggested an episode on Frankenthaler and lended their voices at the top of the show. Our patrons do keep the lights on over here, so why not join them and support the show at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. For more information, past episodes, all the images, info on commissioning episodes, virtual museum tours, and a newsletter, go to thelonelypalette.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lonely Palette and on Instagram at The Lonely Palette. And if nothing else, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We've got a banger of a season coming, so please help us reach new listeners. And one last reminder that if you are in or near Woodstock, Vermont, I am taking the stage with my fellow Hub and Spoke shows Rumble Strip and Soonish for our first ever live show at the Norman Williams Public Library on Thursday, June 15th from 4 to 6 p.m. The event is free and open to the public with a reception afterwards with really good sandwiches. And all you have to do is register at the link in the show notes. I can't wait to see you there. The Lonely Palette is, as ever, a proud founding member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of mind-expanding, idea-driven, and soon live-performed podcasts. And we are so excited to have welcomed a new show to the fold during the hiatus. Print is dead. Long live print. In each episode, host Patrick Mitchell, a career graphic designer for some of the most prestigious print publications, sits down with luminaries from the magazine industry to basically talk about how it's dying and what will bloom to take its place. It's a curious, probing, unexpected show, and I promise you'll be smarter for having listened to it. Start with the Adam Moss episode. You can find it at longliveprint.co, hubspokeaudio.org, or wherever you get your podcasts.